0: Benjamins baby. Uh-huh. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about much more than just the Benjamins, and certainly more than cash. There are cryptocurrencies, blockchains, artificial intelligence, and all intersections of technology and regulatory policy. FinTech Beat will redefine finance. On this podcast, we'll feature the latest trends, movers and shakers, ideas and laws that are shaping this industry. Coming to you from CQ Roll Call Studios in the heart of Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Chris Bromer, and this is Fintech Beat, where the future of finance is now. We're walking into what is widely considered to be not only the heart of derivatives regulation in the United States, but also one of the premier fintech Regulatory agencies. Today, a one on one with Commodity Futures Trading Commission Chairman Christopher Giancarlo. He is a regulator who believes in innovation, sledgehammers, and breaking down barriers. I think sometimes we have a, a
1: problem in that the rulebook book says no.
0: In this episode of FinTech Beat, we talk to the crypto dad himself about cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, and why he believes the 2008 financial crisis could have been handled differently if the world had access to some of the technology fueling finance today. Full disclosure, I sit on the CFTC's Virtual Currency Subcommittee, so I've had the opportunity to listen to some of the more interesting aspects of this conversation. But I found them to be so interesting and so pivotal that I wanted to go to the source and share some of the insights with you. Uh, Oh
1: Chairman! How are you? Good to see you. you. This
0: is Chairman Giancarlo. Uh, the fintech regulator extraordinaire. Thank you so much for taking the time for us. How is it that we got to a world where the CFTC has moved from a financial crisis regulator
1: to a fintech regulator? Yeah, It's it's, it's a really interesting question. We do not have a process for approving new products. There is no political review of new products. We have no process by which political appointees are asked to stand up and say, this product's good for the market or bad for the market. Uh, Countries that do that, which is the rest of the world, don't see a lot of innovation because there's nothing but political risk for a political appointee to approve a new product that somebody may get hurt investing at some point.
0: So let me jump in right here. There's a reason why the chairman is starting off with a conversation on financial products. So the CFTC is best known for regulating contracts where one person promises to deliver something, really anything, to another person. Remember that movie Trading Places?
1: Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy are trading places.
0: There, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd played the roles of traders who ultimately made millions betting on contracts for concentrated orange juice. Well here, instead of concentrated orange juice, Imagine people betting on contracts involving the delivery of Bitcoin. And what the chairman is saying is that the heads of regulatory agencies or political appointees are not in charge of choosing what contracts reference. That's the job of the market. And in particular, the exchanges themselves who come up with the contracts and the ideas for things to be referenced. So let's jump back in.
1: About two decades ago, uh, Congress told the CFTC it will be up to the exchanges to certify new products and our only task is to review them against some core principles. Since that has been the case in the last two decades, over 12,000 new products have come to market in the CFTC's jurisdiction. That dwarfs anything that's been done anywhere else in the world.
0: Uh, at a lot of regulatory agencies, both here in the United States and overseas and talking to other regulators, you get the sense that one of the challenges is just knowing what you're regulating, right?
1: Let um, Let me lay the scene of why I think this round of technological innovation is so challenging. Regulators traditionally have a pattern. They look at an ecosystem and they identify who are the key players in that ecosystem and what are the key infrastructures? It's say in the case of our area, it is, is clearing houses, it's exchanges, and then it's large banks and financial institutions. Regulators then, having identified those parties, then make them subject to registration, data provision, and rule-based operations. Um, and that is the traditional reaction of a regulator to any given ecosystem. Now, how do you have, bring a, a level of, if not comfort, at least acceptance to regulators and expectation that they need to witness these changes, understand these changes, and anticipate where you go from here? And it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about blockchain technology. So let me just jump back in here again.
0: So what is a blockchain Well, if you've never heard of it, the best way to think of it is to analogize it to Google Drive, where you can invite pretty much anyone onto Google Drive to correct a book report or a document that you're trying to create. But the only difference here is that you can not only correct the document, but you can invite people in to change the very program, to change the very website of Google Drive itself. Okay. Now back to the chairman.
1: It allows regulators to go from a high reliance on key market participants to actually be in the center of all the data flows itself. So it lessens its reliance on key players and regulators can actually play a more direct role in its market uh, observation, market surveillance, market oversight.
0: You are clearly anticipating where this discussion is going to go, uh, particularly when it comes to how regulators can use FinTech and technology to help themselves better understand FinTech and uh, technology. But just administratively, you've done some interesting things here, and uh, people may not notice just how they've been uh, more broadly adopted, uh, frankly, in in other regulatory uh, milieu.
1: So, So let me try to paint a picture for your listeners who are, you know, Uh, hearing this through their ears, but maybe something they can see in their mind. If you think about a regulatory agency, you think about a big Washington limestone building, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with a grand brass door entryway. The hallway is very impressive. Exactly. And marble lobby and all of that. When I was given thought to how we would make ourselves more amenable to fintech, innovators, I thought how intimidating that traditional entrance is and understood that the meetings they would attend would be with people who are used to dealing with these traditional market intermediaries that could immediately go to the rule book. It was a great old Saturday night skit that I used to like where somebody would walk into an office and say, "Um, I'm here to see so-and-so and and the person without even looking up would just stare at a computer screen and say, computer says no. (laughs) And and the conversation never went beyond that because the computer says no. I think sometimes we have a, a problem in that the rule book says no, end of conversation. And I think for innovators to come in and, and have that experience with us was unacceptable. We needed a new way of interacting with innovators. And so go back to that, that stone, limestone building. What I wanted to do is take a sledgehammer to one of the side walls, bash a new entryway through uh, with a simple doorway that said innovators come in here and they would go in and, and instead of meeting with a group of pretty stodgy buttoned up regulators with a rule book in front of them that pretty much said no to innovation, to meet with a group of of like-minded individuals who had spent time thinking about where the rule book needed to be uh, adjusted and or or interpreted more broadly. Uh, and who understood technology and could talk the language of some of the newer exponential um, approaches. And so that's exactly what we did. By creating Lab CFTC by, by giving it office hours in New York, in Chicago, in San Francisco, in, in Silicon Valley, in, in Austin, Texas, in the Route 28 corridor, and in, in, in Singapore, and in London, what we, what we wanted people to understand is we'll come to you. You don't have to take the Acela down to Washington and, and come. we'll come to you, we want to meet with you, we want to talk in your language, we want to understand what we're do, doing. That, that doorway that we bashed through the building was, was a mobile doorway and it was, it was a way that we could really do outreach. But you had mentioned
0: uh, this idea of integrating blockchain technology and the potential that blockchain technology has. Um, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more and have a, we can have a discussion on that.
1: Just a little historical step backward for a second. Back in 2008, I was at the helm of the world's largest platform for trading over-the-counter credit default swaps, at derivatives. And I remember getting a call a few days before Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed by a senior regulator at, at one of the large U.S. prudential regulators uh, asking me what I was seeing in, in credit spreads against some of the major um, merchant banks and investment banks and, and, and money center banks. And what that is, is a question of how the market was perceiving their creditworthiness worthiness and, and expectation that any of them might fail. It's measured in the the cost of basically buying insurance against their failure in the form of credit default swaps. And I explained that to the prudential regulator, that, that those spreads were gapping out by the hour, if not by the minute, and we were totally in red zone danger environment. Absolutely. Well, we now know 10 years later that the net exposure of Lehman Brothers was around nine billion. If we knew it was nine billion 10 years ago, we could have made very different policy choices. Wait, a minute. so could you repeat that one more
0: time? So so how much was the the estimate beforehand and then what actually did they learn?
1: So the estimate you know, at crisis point was that it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 billion of exposure meaning that other banks and institutions uh, there was uh, had written as much as 400 billion of protection such that if Lehman fell and collapsed some of those banks and institutions would have been on the hook to pay out and might not have been able to, and so the risk was a daisy chain of falling institutions. Fact of the matter is we now know that when you net them all down, that is, you net the longs against the shorts, the total exposure that the marketplace had to, the, to a fall of Lehman was about $9 billion. Okay, $9 billion in even 2008 uh, money was, is not that great an amount, and the federal government could have chosen to absorb that lost, and, and, but more importantly, could have much more easily, the panic would not have been as nearly as great as it was if we knew that. But we didn't know that. Had we had a blockchain 10 years ago recording credit default exposures of one institution, or if we had it today on interest rate exposures, our regulatory visibility in a crisis would be potentially perfect. And since most crises are caused by panic about the unknown, Certainly, the unknown would suddenly become the known. And policymakers could choose choices that are calibrated to the exact risk and not to some rumors of risk or or fear of risk. And so that's the difference that a blockchain-based financial system brings, an extraordinary amount of regulatory clarity of good data on which to base policy responses to market developments. I think the blockchain is potentially one of the most fundamental uh, technological developments in financial markets since the telephone, since accountancy and bookkeeping. What would be the steps for thinking through how to integrate blockchain technology
0: into a regulatory approach?
1: Yeah. So, so one of the most frustrating things that I've experienced in my two years as chairman is this agency is prevented from participating in blockchain uh, proofs of concept experiments unlike our overseas regulators, because our statute prohibits us from accepting gifts. And participating in a blockchain uh, proof of concept is considered a gift, as our statute is interpreted. Now, there's a bill in Congress sponsored by Austin Scott in the House to allow us to do this. And I really hope that that Bill gets a good hearing and we can correct this. Well,
0: from an international standpoint, a lot of these, whether or not you're talking about digital assets that are living on the internet, or if you're talking about um, other kinds of media that are electronically connecting people across borders, how does the CFTC engage in that process, or how should regulators engage in that process of coordination? So There's
1: a lot going on internationally that's fascinating. So, you know, back in the 1990s, the U.S. In the innovation of the internet, adopted a do no harm approach, and uh, and that was a brilliant uh, step forward. It was a uh, and and as a result, the the internet really was a U.S. innovation uh, with, with some major contributions from elsewhere. We've got to look at some of the smart things being done elsewhere and consider whether we we should emulate some of them. Britain came in first because of some really interesting things. For one thing. Their regulatory um, bodies are all committed to this process and work very well together in the same city. You know, innovators, can, they can visit their central bank, their treasury, and their, and their market regulator all in one day's time. All of them committed to the same program. And that's something that we need to think about in the United States as well. Singapore has been doing some very outstanding work yeah. in this area. And in the area of cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings, there's some very good things going on in continental Europe right now. Uh, France has got their new pact law, which a lot of people are looking at very closely. It, it's, the Germans are doing some interesting work.
0: The world is expanding. New kinds of products are expanding. New kinds of opportunities are expanding. But well, what keeps you up at night? What what are the kinds of things where you, where you see the potential and you say, <laughs> well, that's, that looks great, I'm a fan, but we really need to keep a close eye out on this in order to make sure it's, it's as efficient and uh, helpful to the market as possible.
1: I worry about cyber threats to our markets. Cyber, I cannot say enough how frightening is the exponential growth of cyber threats to our markets. You know, the notorious bank robber once when, was asked, Willie, Willie uh, Sutton, he was asked why he robbed banks. <laughs> and he said, because that's where so the, the money, money. is. Right. Well, the same applies to financial markets. I mean, the reason why cyber uh, attacks on our financial markets is so great is because that's where the money is. And, and our, our U.S. banking system, our, our U.S. markets, are places where the most sophisticated criminals are constantly praying, looking for ways in. Um, and so as, as a regulator of these markets, we have to insist that all our market participants have the highest degree of cyber controls. I'm an evangelist for cyber defenses. Um, you cannot prepare for this enough. And you cannot say never when it comes to a breach. You have to say, how do we respond? respond right? What's the resiliency factor? How do we react to a breach? So I think those are the, the things that keep me up uh, most at night. Um, uh, that is absolutely
0: fantastic advice. Thank you so much, uh, Chairman Giancarlo. This was a, a fantastic discussion, and best of luck to you as well as you continue all the uh, very interesting work here over at the Commission. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Thanks for listening in. This is Chris Brummer with FintechBeat, and we want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat. Or tweet to at Chris Brummer Doctor. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. Join us next time on Fintech Beat, brought to you by CQ Roll Call.